0: thanks Brian for that uh introduction i don 't think i 've ever been introduced as a homeboy before um, but uh, now I have been so thank you i uh, i don 't think I told brian this we we 've kind of gotten to know each other over the last year but i I actually heard about you a long time ago uh, i was uh, we've, we we kind of we were talking about it this morning we have friends at the very place Kyle smith and and I was um I was in seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest. Was that a fan or a kid? Okay. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, and uh, my pastor there, I went to a small church and my pastor there uh, said, oh, you went to Perimeter? And I said, yeah. And I, he says, well, I know the the the, the pastor. I think, I, I guess you, I don't know if you were your pastor then or, or or the senior pastor and he spoke so highly of you. So, um So I felt good about things there. I trusted him. And now that I've gotten to know you, um, I think good about things here at Perimeter. So thank you for your ministry. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We live in a haunted age. This isn't simply true at Halloween time. Though I guess in some respects Halloween perhaps is haunted as well, but I'm going to make the case this morning that this is especially true at Christmas time. Now you're going to have to hang on for that because I've got to explain what I mean by haunted for a second. There's a philosopher, and I know it's never a good idea to quote philosophers from the pulpit, but just bear with me um, by the name of Charles Taylor, and he has shown in in, in one of his books, he's shown how some of Our culture's most popular novelists, poets, and artists point to this haunting. He writes, We live in the twilight of both gods and idols. He's talking about transcendence, of belief in a god or gods. But their ghosts have refused to depart, and every once in a while, we might be surprised to find ourselves tempted by belief. On the other hand, even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. Like it or not, most live in a world between Absolute certainty, absolute religious certainty, and then absolute denial. Both believers and unbelievers. This is where some of the debate between old school fundamentalists and the new atheists and the Richard Dawkins of the world and and those types of people, it it actually misses what I think is most of our culture today, which is in this in-between, they're living in this in-between world, in-between faith and and doubt. Now, this is something that's often not talked about at church. But like it or not, this is where I think we're actually at with most of our culture. As I interact with students on a daily basis now at, at Liberty, it's obvious to me: believers, my, my believing students, which this is a Christian university, so most of them are students who confess Christ. They're tormented by doubts. They're tormented about doubts. I will go teach a large 500-person stand-in for just one class. Uh, these, we have these big evangelism classes of 500 students, and I will give a talk, and they hear that I'm the apologetics guys. So I have a line of 20 students with their questions afterwards. I have emails all the time. Students are tormented by doubt. But it also seems to go the other way. Just from my anecdotal experience at Liberty, we have, we have many students at Liberty, who, because of the size it's grown to, we have 15,000 on-campus students, that they, it's a good, affordable engineering program or business program, and so they come in and they have to take these religious courses, too. And, and what I've found is, even the atheists, there's a few new atheists, aggressive atheists, but most of these unbelievers, they have their doubts, too. Of course, their doubts are about their unbelief. And this doubt can even taunt them. It can torment them. It can haunt them. I think we see in our culture, I just want to mention kind of three, what I'm calling, uh, borrowing from Charles, Charles Taylor, the, the person I cited before, these kind of pressure points within our culture. Where even people who deny God, they, they seem to seem to be tempted or, or haunted, so to speak, by a belief in transcendence by a belief in God. The first is marriage, particularly marriage ceremonies. When I was pastoring in Dublin, we would have people all the time, I don't know if this happens up Perimeter, but we had people all the time calling the church, wanting to get married at the church. And one of the questions that we would ask is, well, where do you go to church? They said, well, we don't go to church. And I never asked. I never asked them, but I was always in the back of my mind and say, if you never go to church, how come you won't want to get married in a church? And I also hear, of, uh, I even have had friends who aren't religious at all, and yet when they, and this is really awkward when they ask me, they, they want me to pastor, uh, officiate their wedding. And I'm honored by that, but yet on the other hand, I'm thinking, you, you never come to church yet, now you want a pastor to do this. I think even people who deny God, who deny religion, they get to this significant point in life and they recognize recognize the significance of a marriage ceremony and they want to mark out this thing called marriage as significant, as valuable, as meaningful. Yet, without God, there is no ultimate meaning in marriage. Yet, the pressure point is instinctively, something instinctively about us, searches for ways, I think rightly, to mark this day off. And that's why we have ceremonies. That's why various cultures have ceremonies for their weddings. I mean, for their marriage, which we call weddings. But there's something inconsistent here. And I think there's a pressure point when, when even though they de- deny ultimate meaning, they're in search for it. And they want to mark it. We also see this haunting, what I'm describing as haunting, in the face of death. Listen to David Reif. He's a secular, and he writes, he writes about his mother's illness and, and ultimately her death. And it's a very touching piece. It's a little long for, for, for church service, but I think it's worth it. So listen to what he says. Am I to ascribe some special meaning to the intensity of her final years, as if somehow she had a premonition that her time was ending, or is it all this, or is all this just that vain, irrational human wish to ascribe meaning when no meaning is really on offer? As he's as he's writing, he's he, he's he's committed to being strictly rational about this. He denies, in his writing, he denies the beliefs in spirits. And he says, that, he, he says that Christian fairy tale is silly. And yet he goes on. Listen to his words. And so it ended. As her corpse was lowered into the grave and I knelt at the edge of the burial hall, I felt she was still there. Today when I go visit my mother's grave, I do not know what to do besides tidy up a bit. Me tidying up for my mother, how preposterous, a preposterous reversal of roles. In any case, the cemetery gardeners do an excellent job, as do the many visitors to the gravesite. But I do not believe she is there, or anywhere else, of course, and so I rarely stay long. And yet, he does go, doesn't he? And he visits her, or at least her body, at least her corpse. And, and then this is, this is what he says. Once I've arrived, I stay for a few moments. Then I kneel, kiss the granite slab, and get back on my feet. And then I go, hurriedly, confusingly. It is not just that I have nothing intelligent to say. I'm incapable of thought. The Apostle Paul says, Death wears your sting. The secular says, Death, you have no meaning. And yet, even for the secular, something about death is haunting. Even for the person who is irreligious, there's something instinctively almost, and I think you see traces of it here, that there's something more. And finally, and this is really, of course, what we wanted to build up to today. I think in our culture today, Christmas can have this haunting effect. I remember being a, a, a child, and, and I, I loved Christmas. I still love Christmas, but I loved Christmas, and it was, it was almost overwhelming. I mean, the presents are out there all wrapped up, the stockings, and you know, we did hide the elf, and it, it was just all overwhelming for a young guy. And, and the presents, the food, the family, I love being around my family. But I wonder if you shared this experience with me. I can remember as a child, just every, when it was all over, The day or two after. And I was sitting there, and I had played for my toys, and I was kind of already bored with them. And I my family had gone, and I can remember this kind of certain gloom. It was all over. More than this, I think there's a certain flatness and emptiness that comes for many when Christmas simply is about mass consumerism. There has to be something else to ground all this celebrating in. Perhaps the secular thinks. So, but, but yet the lucky ones turn to family and friends, the ones that they love and the ones that love them back, and they say, this is what Christmas is all about. Aha, uh-huh, but the thoughtful secular, he or she knows that for him or her, the love is just a product of evolution, an evolutionary force or random chemicals in our body. And in any case, the thoughtful secular knows that those friends and those loved ones, they will die one day, and these parties won't be so festive. There's nothing in this, for the secular, the thoughtful secular, really to celebrate, no reality to love, no transcendent meaning, and yet we all instinctively want to celebrate, don't we? No matter if you believe God or not, I, I find it's human nature we want to celebrate, we desperately want people to love. We desperately want meaning in this world. We all desperately want to live for something that matters. And so I find that even my students, even my secular students at Liberty, we have some, they, they find themselves haunted by these desires. And these desires, I think, can even be more palpable at christmas time when everyone's celebrating and this is what if that's you today i want to just suggest this what if what if the christmas story isn't or we can add the christian story what if it isn't simply the greatest story ever to be told as tolkien said but what if it is actually true matthew 1:18 Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Indeed, this is quite an incredible story. This is the stuff of old fairy tales. The modern person can't believe this. At least that's what we're told. C.S. Lewis would call this type of thinking chronological snobbery. It's the type of thinking that says, we have arrived now, and all the people before us were really gullible and dumb, but now we know. The problem with this type of thinking, not only is it snobbery, but the problem is, is that the Christmas story is not something a conservative Jew would be making up in the first century. He simply wouldn't make it up. It would be too risky to make up a story like this. It would sound fishy. These people weren't gullible. The story of the virgin birth is not something that Matthew or Luke makes up because they're thinking, this will be real popular with everyone around us. We'll convince all the other Jews. No. no it, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that if they were going to make up, they would have made up this way. Conservative Jews would have looked cross-eyed at this notion. They knew where babies came from, too. They knew how it worked. Now, he wrote this story. At the very least, we have to say, Matthew wrote this, and Luke wrote this story because they actually believed it happened. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now, I just want just to mark that for you. Just mark that in your mind. We've got to come back to this. Uh, it, it's actually significant the way the angel addresses Joseph, son of David. We'll come back to that in a second. But after recalling his ancestry, Now we've got to go back for a minute and get what's going on, especially just a bit of the Old Testament here. Because this is a story that just didn't pop on the scene, but this is a story that's been building, although building in a very mysterious way. Matthew is quoting from Isaiah seven fourteen. Isaiah was written about seven hundred years before the birth of Christ, and one thing if we hear Christian apologists they'll say something like this about Isaiah 7.14. They'll say, see, we have this statement from Isaiah, which was direct prophecy for the future Messiah, and that proves Christianity. Now, this, leaves, this can leave the impression, and it has with many, and perhaps many of you, that everyone in the first century was waiting around for a baby to be born of a virgin so they could prola- proclaim him to be the Messiah. The problem with this, quite bluntly, is that that it's just not the case. Now, you don't have to be alarmed by that, okay? I'm a Christian. I believe in the virgin birth. But it's just not a very good argument. See, because from the resources we have, the evidence we have uh, from Jewish literature is that no one in this day was expecting the Messiah to be born of a virgin, Apparently, they just didn't read Isaiah 7 that way. So that, you might be thinking that's a problem, but let me tell you how it's actually a problem for the skeptic. The problem for the skeptic is, is you wouldn't, if if this is the case, which I believe it is, you wouldn't make up, Matthew or Luke wouldn't make up this story to convince everyone that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. If no one was actually looking for the Messiah to be born of a virgin, why would Matthew make it up? He wouldn't have. He wouldn't have made it up. Instead of Matthew making it up to fulfill a first century expectation that really wasn't a first century expectation, it seems better to say that Matthew found this passage in Isaiah... And he found it amazing because it fit with the story that he knew of Jesus. Do you see? It wasn't an expectation, but Matthew... Just just a second. Imagine. Just put yourself in Matthew's shoes. Let's do it this way. Imagine being Matthew. Now, this is going to be a stretch on a number of levels. One of the things that it's a stretch on is that you live and breathe, not college football, but the Old Testament Scriptures. And I can say that because yesterday was a tough day for my jackets. But so you're but you're actually, you're actually living and breathing the Old Testament Scriptures. You know them. And you've also walked with Jesus. And you've seen his miracles, and you've seen what he's done, and that has wowed you. You've seen him die and rise again. And you knew the story of his birth, and now the church has tasked you with this task, this very special task, to write the gospel. And you're interviewing and you're talking to other eyewitnesses and you are reminded of the story you already knew about his birth, his miraculous birth. And then you recall that passage that you know so well, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call call his name Emmanuel. And you think, Yes, that's it. Matt. Now, there's a lot of scholarly debate here. I'm going to just kind of sum up a few things really quickly. Matthew knows that that Hebrew word in, in Isaiah 7.14 could mean young maiden and virgin. It could mean either one. Sometimes you'll hear that, and it's indeed true. It could mean that. His words have certain flexibility in how they're used. And yes, Matthew also knows that his initial Hearers, The initial hearers of Isaiah 7 would have likely heard this as a reference to Isaiah's son. That's how probably most of the Jews of the day, back then, in Isaiah's day, would have heard this. Matthew knows the Old Testament Scriptures, and he knows that. However, he also knows about that son that's mentioned, not only in chapter 7 Isaiah, but you guys know this one, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Some of you don't know you know this passage, forth, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Matthew, he knows all that stuff that I just mentioned, but he also knows that this passage, this passage here, could not be fulfilled simply by Isaiah's son in the Old Testament. Notice in these verses, this, remember what I said before, we're going to come back to this, this descendant of David in Isaiah 9 and 6 and 7. This one in David's line. Notice how Notice how Isaiah describes them there in those two verses I just read. Did you see some of that? This kind of can come over us because we hear it every Christmas. But see these words. This son is wonderful counselor, mighty God, who will reign forevermore. Now granted, once again, the Jews had their own way of reading this. I mean, they they would they 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 didn't have a category for a Davidic king who was also divine. They didn't they didn't but they didn't put it together like that because they were monotheists, and they didn't believe that a human could be God. But nonetheless, they came to passages like this, and it was it was challenging, where you have the God of Israel, their God, and this future king, and they're linked so tightly. It's a bit uncomfortable. But this isn't just a one-time occurrence in the Old Testament. You have this link between the God of Israel and this future coming son, this future human son, and they're seen very tightly together in other places. Let me give you just one more. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 11. Now, just thinking some dates in mind. Isaiah's around 700 BC, Ezekiel's around 600 BC, I'm rounding up. So about 600 years before Christ now. So we're a little bit further along kind of this 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 his, this trajectory of thought. And listen to what the Lord says, verse 11 in chapter 34. Just to give you the context, you have the leaders of Israel have not taken care of the people of God, and so God is rebuking them. And notice the eyes. Notice what God will do. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out. And it goes on for this. It goes on like this have up there through 16, we won't read it, but over over and over again, it's I, I, the Lord speaking, I will do this. Jump down to verse 20, same chapter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust out all the weak with your thorns till you have scattered them abroad. Again, it's this rebuke for the leadership. He says, I will rescue my flock. There we see it again, I, they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So you're reading this passage, and you're saying, so who's the shepherd? Well, it's I. It's I. It's God. It's God. It's my servant David. And there's this trajectory, even though the Jews didn't read it like this, there's this trajectory coming through in the Old Testament where you have this future Messiah, this future Davidic king. And it's very very tightly woven together with the God of Israel. And so this fits very nicely, actually, with what Matthew says. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So if you haven't been tracking with me, track back in now. Tune back in. Here's the point with the introduction. If there is a God, a God who has entered the world by a person in Jesus Christ and has died on the cross to bring redemption, and he will one day return, then it is right. And it is perfectly sensible to mark out your wedding day and your vows because it does really matter. And you don't have to be haunted by that because it makes sense. You don't have to be, if this is true, if the Christmas story is true, you don't have to be haunted and confused at the graveside. But you can say, in one sense, with the Apostle Paul, Death, where is your sting? And you don't have to be haunted at Christmas time, you can celebrate it. You can enjoy your family and friends knowing that love is more than simply chemicals. Knowing that even if your loved ones have passed, even if you're looking back and you're saying, I can never get those years back. It's not like it was. They're not here anymore. You can look forward and say, a better day is coming. Isn't that a reason to really party hard this Christmas? Of all people, we should know how to, we should get this. We should get a party. Okay? Verse 24 and 25. When Jesus woke, you know, this just occurred to me to say this, and it wasn't planned. And I don't normally do this, but I'd also say this. It, oftentimes with our sin in our life, we can look back and, and maybe you're here this morning and, I, and, and you're wrestling with sin and you say, I made some huge mistakes and I can never get that back. It's always going to affect my life. And I want to say, yes, sin has consequences, but if you are in Christ, a better day is coming. A better day is coming. Verse 24 and 25. When Jesus woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now guys, I want you to once again put yourself... In this kind of story, put yourself in this situation. You're engaged to a girl and you've been playing by the rules. I assume you know what I'm talking about here. So you're playing by the rules and you find out your fiance is pregnant. How are you feeling about the whole thing? Now, if you're a first century Jew, divorce was not simply allowed for this sort of thing. In the surrounding cultures, it was expected. It was mandated, even. And so Joseph was trying to do the right thing, but he, and, he, and he, he didn't want to shame Mary. He, he had no choice, and, and so he would get out of the betrothment. He would try to save her as much shame as he could, but his hands were tied. But, but then, as we've read already, he has this dream. He, he has this dream, and it's a bit odd. I'm assuming Joseph didn't have these types of dreams all the time. And, and I can imagine him thinking, you know, this seems so real. It, it had to be real, but, but this is strange. Can I really trust this dream? And, and more than that, this is going to kill my reputation. In a Jewish culture, they had very strict rules about premarital sex. And, and people would draw obvious conclusions about Joseph, wouldn't they? And so Joseph is faced with this big decision. A decision that, uh, you know, uh, and human, humanly speaking, it would change his life. It's a decision that would ultimately change the world from a human perspective. We, and, and we can, I just want to say this by way of application. We, we all know committing ourselves to a big decision is rarely easy, is it? Oftentimes, I, especially with students who are wrestling with these sorts of things, and, and, they, and they say, listen, I okay, to your point, I feel haunted. There has to be meaning. But, but I don't, I just, I need something. I mean, this is a big deal. This is my life. This is this is how I'm going to live. They get the ramifications of being a Christian. It really does matter. It really does change things if you're a Christian. And they say, so I, I just need to be 100% sure before I make such a big decision. But let's just think about that for a second. It. Is that really the standard that we use for most of our decisions? For most of our big decisions? Many, many, you can tell my context here, but many of my students at Liberty, in the next, well, months or years, they're going to make a pretty big decision about their life, and that's who they're going to marry. And what I asked them is do you have 100% proof about what that person will be like in five years or 10 years or 20 years? Let me tell you, students, you do not. You have no idea. I mean, granted, there's a certain trajectory, and listen to your pastors cause in, and your parents, because a lot of times they've lived a little longer well, hang on, they've always lived a little longer. but they've seen especially your parents they've seen the trajectory, and so they can pick up on some things. But to be honest, we don't know. And so if you're saying, OK, well, before I do anything, uh, I've got to be 100 percent sure. Well, you're going to be single. We make most of our decisions without 100% certainty. We all take steps of faith in life, whether we're re- religious or not. We're living by faith. It's just faith in different things. Joseph here places his faith in the Lord. Now, just notice one more thing, and this is, we're going to close up in just a second. But notice, and this is kind of an aside but relevant point to close on. Mary and Joseph were married but they didn't consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. Now, what point do I have to make with that? Well, I want to address newlyweds for just a second. If you're a newlywed, if you're about to get married, I want to say this. This has no, absolutely no direct application for you. Okay? I don't think I needed to say that. (laughs) I think you probably already figured that out. I just wanted to make the point. None at all. Absolutely no direct application. But it has indirect application for all of us. For all of us. In a hookup culture that says do what feels good, we should be reminded of their restraint here. There's a particular special circumstance, but what we can learn from is their restraint and discipline. God commands us to a different kind of, such, of sexual ethic, not only because God is, disple- is, is unhappy when somebody breaks his commandments, of course, but also because we rob ourselves of God's best and we settle for something that's not nearly as good when we ignore his commandments. Yeah, see, it's all about God. But then it's not as if God has set things up to torture us. He knows what he's doing. And so when you decide to make your own rules, you're robbing yourself of God's best. So we discipline and we restrain ourselves to please God, yes, but also we discipline and we restrain ourselves for joy, for the joy of God. Of course, this isn't true only about sex. This is true of the whole Christian life. Oftentimes, when I talk to people, maybe you're, maybe this is you this morning, and, and, you're, and you're wrestling through the claims of Christ, you're wrestling through the gospel, and you've gotten to the point where you say, you know what, I, I believe this is true. I want to believe this is true, and I do, but this, I, this restraint, I, I, I don't want to wear the straitjacket, because this is going to limit me. But don't, here's the thing don't view it as a jacket that's going to restrain you. It might look like that. But what it really is, what the offer is, is a life jacket. It's the only way you'll find true life. Being a Christian not only means that there is no more reason for Christmas to be haunted. If you come into the family of God, if you embrace God, there's no reason, even if this isn't every, everything you would want Christmas to be, a better day is coming. So there's no reason for Christmas to be haunted. But also, if you become a Christian, if you accept Christ, there's also every reason for you to have joy, because God knows what, his, what he's doing. And when you accept the call of Christ... When you accept the cross of Christ. Yes, this this world is can be more challenging, but it is the only world it's the only life that is satisfying and will satisfy your soul. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us at Christmas time. It is so easy. As we often, as we hear, and it's almost cliche, but it's, it's, it's so easy for us to get lost in everything else but you at Christmas, and just the busyness of it. Lord, I pray even more so for those who are haunted this Christmas who desperately and who who feel the pressure of desperately wanting a purpose, who feel the pressure of of, of, of wanting to have meaning in their life, to wanting to really celebrate and have hope. Lord, may you work in their heart this morning. May you free them up to respond to the call to come to you.